Good morning, everybody. All's a lot, isn't it? When you sing those words, um, th- th- those aren't to be taken lightly, are they? So, surrendering all. I think mission accomplished. You want to go home? If you if you already surrendered all, I I can't add to that. So I hopefully won't take away from it. Good to be with you. We were on vacation last week in North Carolina. The heat index was only over 100 for a few days of those. It was a wonderful time. We got to see five soccer games and three volleyball matches of the grandkids, which was a hoot. And uh, our daughter is now volleyball coach, which is a hoot too. We could heckle her from the sidelines, tell her she doesn't know what she's doing. Remember youth sports? It's just a delightful time there. Anyhow, it was a great time. Good to be back with you. And um, who knew so many people like to camp? Uh, So church is kind of like business class today. You can kind of stretch out. You all have an exit row that you get to set in. Uh, There's a whole bunch. There's hundreds of people up there at Chain of Lakes. Who knew? Your food food has bugs in it, and, you know, you smell bad and you know, as I always say, the best part about camping is going home. So uh, I'm sure those folks will all be happy later today. Hey, we're starting uh, the verse by verse through the book of Hebrews today. I know I left it there on purpose, but I wished I hadn't now. So um, we have these little companion books of Hebrews out there for you. They're free. We bought them for you. They'd be a, a nice little uh, uh, addition. I'll hold it up at the end of the service to remind you. If you haven't grabbed one, it's got the entire text of the book of Hebrews and a bunch of blanks for you to just write questions or thoughts or notes or uh, observations that you make, or if you want to transfer some of the notes that we give into there, at the end you're going to have a neat little um, comprehensive study of the book of Hebrews right in your hands that you can use later. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie The Italian Job, uh, classic, uh, I guess, if you love Mini Coopers. It's a really fine film. But in the film, there uh, a group of thieves steal a bunch of gold, and then one of the thieves steals from the thieves, and then they're going to get him back because they thought he killed them all, but they didn't, and they came back to get their gold back from the thief who stole from the thieves. Are you, are you following the thing so far? And they get to the guy who stole the house, and they're like, you know, surrounding it and looking at it uh, and, you know, surveying how to get him back. And they have a guy in their group they call Left Ear. And Left Ear's the guy who, uh, who blew up a thing as a kid and couldn't hear out of his left ear because he loved explosives. And he's standing there or he's sitting in the car looking at the house and they're going to figure out how to break in the house. Um, I'm going into way more detail than I planned on this. I apologize. <laughs> trying to set a scene for you. And uh, there's, he's standing there. And he's like, okay, we'll do this. And then these two giant Rottweilers come out. And he goes, oh, man, they got dogs. And they, they go, yeah. And he goes, I don't do dogs. And they go, well, why don't you do dogs? He goes, because I had a bad experience. And so they start making fun of him, and he grabs his microphone. He goes, I had a bad experience. I don't do dogs, right? How many people say that about Christianity? I had a bad experience. I don't do church. 
I don't do Christianity. In fact, I want to talk with you this morning about deconstruction of faith versus construction of faith. So I want to give you the Joshua Harris problem. And I picked this out. Amy and I were listening to podcasts all the way back, nine and a half hours worth of podcasts. I was bleary-eyed. My ears were bleeding by the time I got back to Fort Wayne. But anyhow, uh, one of the podcasts was called I Kiss Christianity Goodbye by a fellow named Joshua Harris, who in the late 90s wrote a book that made him famous called I Kiss Dating Goodbye. Any of you heard of it? Seven of you. Great. We'll get along just fine. And in that book, Joshua Harris, who came out of the homeschool movement, built a case for dating being uh, counterproductive to purity uh, in young people's lives. And so he kissed uh, dating goodbye. He was 22 years old when he wrote the book in 1997. He sold over a million copies of this book. Joshua Harris became part of the Christian celebrity scene. He was the conference speaker everybody wanted to have. He was the guy who was running his own conferences in the the late 90s. Uh, C.J. Mahaney picked Joshua up, put his arm around him, and put him on his church staff in Maryland uh, called uh, Covenant uh, Life Church in Maryland. C.J. Mahaney, one of the founders of together for the gospel, took Joshua under his wing to train him. And in 2004, Joshua became the senior pastor of the mega church in Maryland. Uh, he became and was that pastor for 11 years. Um, after those 11 years, a scandal was exposed at Covenant Life Church in Maryland of child abuse by church workers, youth pastors, and so on. And the leadership of that church did not uh, report it, did not deal with it forthrightly. Um, uh, Troy, I don't think we would do that here, would we? I don't think so. If you do that here, we will send you to the police. We'll visit you in jail. Okay, we'll love on you, but you will stand accountable for your deeds. Anyhow, they didn't do that there. When it all became exposed, Joshua Harris was thrown out of the church as the pastor. He had never studied theology, so he decided this would be a good time. He moved clear across the country to Vancouver, uh, Canada, and went to Regent uh, Seminary there and began studying the Bible more earnestly. And as he studied the Bible at that point, he began to question everything he had believed to this point in his life. That was in 2016. Three years later, 2019, uh, Mr. I Kissed Dating Goodbye kissed his wife goodbye. And he divorced his wife and left his family of three kids in July of 2019. The next day online, because everything happens online now, right, in real time. For us old folks, we get the news much later. But anyhow, he renounced Christianity the next day. So he divorced his wife one day. The following day, he renounced Christianity. And the guy who kissed uh, dating goodbye, the guy who was the rock star conference speaker, the guy who was the megachurch pastor, said, I am deconstructing my faith. And he actually, for a time, put out a kit that you could buy for $279 to deconstruct your faith. 
yay. I think I see something happening. Anyhow, um, Harris quit because he had what? A bad experience. Now, if I had you stand up in this room, for every person in this room who's had a bad experience with Christianity, there'll probably be more of you standing than seated. What is it that keeps a person persevering when they've had a bad experience? Well, the book of Hebrews also shows a problem. Let me give you five passages. I think they're in your notes. And just quickly look at these five where the writer of Hebrews thinks that these folks are on the edge of deconstructing their faith. Are you ready? Chapter 2, verse 1. We must therefore pay a much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. He's concerned they're about to drift off in their, uh, away from their faith. Chapter 3, verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. There's a hardness in an unbelieving heart that there that frightens the writer. Chapter 5, verse 11. As this, uh, about this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. These are not friendly warnings, are they? These are Great concerns from the writer to the Hebrews who said, I think you guys are about to give up on your faith. Chapter 10, verse 26. Uh, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice of sins. There is a willful rebellion that's potentially a part of this Hebrew uh, community. And finally, chapter 12, verse 25. Uh, See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. There's a stubbornness and a potential for these Hebrew people to say, I don't want to be a part of this Christianity thing anymore. I have given up on persevering. I have had a bad experience. This has not turned out the way I was promised. Um, what I want to share with you today is a reason why, even when you have a bad experience, that your faith is worth holding on to. The reality is, you guys, church is messy because there's a bunch of messy people in here. And, 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 and people make mistakes and people behave poorly. There's also the reality of spiritual implantation of posers where Satan himself will infiltrate local churches to get Christians to behave poorly. And I put them in air quotes because they weren't ever really Christians, but they looked like Christians. They may even been in leadership. My goodness, they may have written a book that sold 1.2 million copies. They might be on the conference speaking tour, but they could have always been phony. And when they are exposed, they take so many people down with them. It is a beautiful strategy if you think about it. 
Our, our greatest problem in Christianity is not when Satan attacks the church, it's when Satan joins the church. That is way more destructive than the attacks. The attacks purify. The joining contaminates. Now, as a pastor, I have said this before and it really wasn't in my notes, but let me say it again. God asked me to shepherd wolves. He asks me to tend to the garden that has weeds in it. And what he said was, I'll take care of it at the end. And I'm like, I would prefer you take care of it now because the weeds are hurting the good crops. But I can't even tell what the weeds are sometimes. Who's a weed and who's not a weed? And by weed, I don't mean weed, if you know what I mean. As I came out of my mouth, I'm like, oh, gosh, uh, uh, weed. I Sorry. So, that's the deacon. But there is a construction of faith. You're just singing about it. Let let me tip my hand right up front, because you're going to doze in and out of this thing. Your thought about deconstructing your faith because you had a problem needs to be counterbalanced with this reality. Jesus is too good to turn your back on him. His people are messy. The church is aghast. It's awful at times. But Christ isn't. So the writer of Hebrews actually begins with the description of Jesus. I just gave you five things he's concerned about. He doesn't say howdy. He doesn't say, how you doing? He doesn't say, I'm praying for you. He jumps right into, here's your Savior. And so the construction of faith is this. I have a good God. In spite of, I had a bad experience. Your bad experience does not mean you have a bad God. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18. Let me show you what the Bible says about God says that there are two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. God is filled with integrity. He cannot tell you something that isn't true. It is impossible for Him to lie. Therefore, don't miss the second half of the verse, we who fled for refuge can have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope. Because our God cannot lie, I am encouraged and I have hope in spite of I had a bad experience. I really wished you hadn't had a bad experience. We try to shepherd our church so that you never have a bad experience. Unfortunately, we are flawed, clay-footed human beings who only make mistakes when we're awake. Sometimes I make mistakes while I'm sleeping. Now, chapter 1, verses 1 to 4 then, tells us not just about the integrity of God, but tells you about the magnificence of the Son of God. And I believe that when this passage is finished being preached, that your appreciation, admiration, and allegiance to Jesus should grow 
maybe exponentially. Because when you see who Christ is, whatever your bad experiences are, kind of drift off into the margins. What happens, though, if we lose focus on Christ, we focus on the bad experience. And we think there's something wrong with Him because we had a tough time. Charles Spurgeon, in 1882, May 12th, Sunday night church. Y'all remember Sunday night church? I don't know if you remember Sunday night. We used to have Sunday night church. Ten of you used to come back every Sunday night. We had a wonderful time. Had this text, and he stood up in front of his congregation, May 12th, 1882, and he says, I have nothing to do tonight but to preach Jesus Christ. You guys... Fall in love with your Lord again today. I don't know what your experience is. I can't wait for you to see him. You ready? Stand. Let's read our text. Amazing passage. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, the Son whom He appointed the heir of all things, the Son through whom He created the world. The Son is the radiance of the glory of God. The Son is the exact imprint of God's nature. The Son upholds the universe by the word of His power. The Son, after making purification for sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The Son has become much superior to the angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. That is some Son, isn't it? Let's pray. Father, um, we are humbled to gather in the name of Your Son today as Christians. We name Your Son as our Savior. We name Him as our Lord. We name Him as our King. He is our Redeemer. He is our creator. He is the one who shares his inheritance with us. Indeed, Father, he is as divine as you are. And therefore, we bow before you and thank you for your son and pray that we would never lose sight of your son as we live our lives in this sin-infested world, the world that attacks faith in your son. So I pray this morning for anybody in this room who's thinking about giving up because they had a bad experience. I pray for them this morning, Father, that they could see your son and that they would be overwhelmed by how great he is. Help me to speak well on your behalf and lift his name high and draw these dear people to him. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You ready? we got a bunch of good stuff here. So the passage starts out with God speaking. Long ago, in many ways, God spoke. In these last days, He has spoken. I know it's maybe picking nits a little bit, but it's not a small thing for God to talk. He didn't have to. He didn't have to reveal anything about Himself, you guys. He could have stayed silent and left us in the shadows, but he has chosen to speak. 
he revealed secrets about himself that we would never have known if he hadn't spoken. But he did speak, and it is by his grace that he has given knowledge of who he is. And we draw near to his word and we go, oh my goodness, God has spoken. We get to know something about him. How hard would it be if we did not ever know his voice? This is the plight of our neighbors, by the way, who have never heard God speak. They've never experienced God's word. And as far as they're concerned, God has never said anything, but he has. And by his grace, he gives his speech to us. You'll notice first that he spoke long ago. Who did he speak through? It says he spoke through the prophets. We could go back and listen. We just did the Old Testament survey. I don't want to spend a lot of time here. But you could start naming prophets, Elijah, Elisha, Moses, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel. Um, give me another one. Nehemiah, Jonah, Amos. We could just go on and on. In those times, he spoke through them. How did he do it? You'll notice the text says he did it in many times and in many ways. Uh, in the Greek, it's actually an alliteration, which warms my heart as a guy who likes to alliterate. It is an alliteration, and it means basically this. In many times, it was progressive. It was fragmented. What he told Moses, he told him something different than what he told Isaiah. What he told Isaiah was something different than he told Daniel. It was fragmented. And so in many times, God revealed himself. We would call this, in theology world, progressive revelation. In other words, you know more about God today than David did when he walked this. That's hard to think about that, isn't he? He wrote some pretty good songs. But, but the progression of God's revelation, you now know more than David knew. Well, in the Old Testament, Abraham knew less than Moses did. Moses knew less than... Solomon did. Solomon knew less than, pick somebody, Gideon? No, Gideon was before him. Uh, Daniel. We could go on and on. So in many ways and in many times, what are the different ways God spoke in the Old Testament? How did he talk to Moses? Somebody tell me. Boy, I heard a lot of noise, but I'm really old and kind of deaf. Someone say something that I can understand. A bush! When's the last time you had a conversation with a bush? Don't answer that question. <laughs> Please. <laughs> I can see it now. You're in your front yard talking to your bush. The little, the, little, the little truck shows up, the men in the white suits. They put their arm around you. Come, come with me. Oh, that's good. Well, 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 your neighbors are concerned about your well-being. Well, I'm... I'm, I'm, I'm talking to my bush how did he talk to Balaam a donkey are you kidding me we could go on through the Old Testament and all these manifestations of the various ways God spoke dreams clouds angels separating seas angels in fire pits on and on we go. In fact, 
They're so amazing the way God spoke in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we almost feel cheated because we really do want to talk to a bush. We think it'd be amazing if a cloud just hung out over our front lawn and said, hey man, uh, you ought to do this. You ought, to, you ought to sell your house and give all the money to share squared. And you go, no, I don't think that's what God's saying at all. I'm just messing with you a little bit. So long ago, that's what he did. He spoke. But he's not done speaking. You'll notice in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. So first of all, understand, these are the last days, you guys. You're in them. They are defined by the revelation, the advent, the person of Christ. When the Son came, He ushered in the last days. And He came to speak God's Word to us. Uh, George Guthrie put together just a little table of comparison. Let me go over it very quickly with you. So in, in the long ago, He spoke. In these last days, He spoke. Long ago, he spoke to our forefathers, the text says. In these last days, you'll notice who he's spoken to? Us. Uh, in the old days, he spoke through the prophets. In these last days, he's spoken by what? The Son. In the old days, he spoke in many different ways. How has he spoken in the last days? One way through the Son. This is very helpful to us in understanding our Lord's place in the will of God. He becomes the voice of God in the last days. The implication is this that God's speech through His Son is superior to burning bushes and clouds and donkeys. It's way better. It's more thorough. It's more comprehensive. When He sent His Son, He sent His greatest speech. I think when people have a bad experience, they forget that. I think when people have a bad experience... They let the experience speak to them louder than the Son. And so in chapter 3, verse 1 of, of our uh, letter, it says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in the heavenly calling, look at the next two words, consider Jesus. He didn't say consider your lovely lifestyle. He didn't say consider the ease and the wonderful plan he has for your life. I'm going to talk a little bit more about how evangelical Christianity in the West has presented Christianity as the solution to all problems. I'm going to suggest to you that Christianity is going to be the source of many problems. And if you come into Christianity thinking, oh, I now have Jesus, all my problems are solved, and you continue to have problems, you're going to go, I had a bad experience. It's because you stop looking at the sun. Now, so the sun speaks in these last days. There are 
in our passage a description of seven different things about this son and all of them showing that he is superior to everything and everyone who's come before him. Um, I started down this path. Let me go ahead and finish it. If you're not up for difficulties, don't follow Jesus. I'll show you in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. Just to stay right where we're at. So the recipients of the letter, who are Christ followers, and I don't think they've been taught what we've been taught in America, that if you follow Christ, everything's just going to be great. And um, that has not been the experience of most Christians in history or most Christians on the planet today. I also believe that we in America and in the West, I guess we're the West, Europe's already gone through this, as Christ followers are about to experience hard times, difficult times because of faith. We're about to have bad experiences because our culture's turning on us. And it's turning on us at such a level that could cause us to say, that's not worth it. It's turning on us in such a way that goes, this isn't what I signed up for when I found Jesus and he had a wonderful plan for my life. Chapter 10, verse 32, these same Hebrews, recall the former days when after you were enlightened, <laughs> after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those who are so treated. You had compassion on those in prison. You ready for this one? You joyfully accepted the plundering of your Harley. I have a Honda, personally. I don't have a Harley. Mine's self-propelled, four wheels. Think about it. That might catch up to you in a little bit. I often think about as I'm pushing my Harley through my front yard, or my Honda through my front yard as the guy drives by me on his motorcycle, how different people we are. You know, he's, a, I'm sorry. <laughs> you joyfully accepted the plundering of your problem, property. Why would you do that? Because you know that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not deconstruct your faith. That's a loose paraphrase of don't throw away your confidence which has a great reward. You have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God you will receive what is promised. I'm going to get into that in just a moment. So the lie that we've embraced in the West in an American Christianity is that when we believe everything's going to be great. What the Bible teaches us is when we believe, we have a whole new set of problems. 
Some of them are extremely difficult. And so I wrote them on the top of my next page. So why would anybody believe? Why take on new problems? i got enough problems myself. Why do I want new problems? And he gives seven reasons why. Let me sum it up with one sentence, though. The reason you're willing to endure those problems is because of the greatness of the Son. You see, once you understand who the Son is, and that you get to participate with the Son in all spiritual health and wealth and, 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 and the beauty of faith, those other things become less significant. And you can then say, I had a bad experience, but my Lord's better than my experience. Okay? Let's go over the seven real quick. First, he is an inheritor. So, he is spoken to us by his son, verse 2, whom he appointed the heir of all things. All things are a lot of things. Have you noticed that? It is a comprehensive inheritance that is Jesus's. It means this, he is the possessor of everything. Before he left earth and he looked at his disciples, he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. He is it, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. There's no one above him. He possesses it all. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4 says that that inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for who? You. The inheritance that Christ has is the inheritance that Christ shares. And he has inherited everything. Guess what he shares with you? Everything. Let me show it to you. Romans chapter 8, verses 16 and 17. I uh, normally would have had the page numbers, but uh, I found out that we have two different kinds of Bibles in the chairs. Yay, uh, not too smart on our part. Who knew that uh, the new, you know, people take the Bibles, which we, if you need a Bible, take one home. That's beautiful. We replace it. And then the new ones go from zero to whatever the Old Testament is. And then they start at zero with the New Testament again. So if I say to go to page 700, you're like, there is no page 700, you knucklehead. So I got to figure that one out. Um, Anyhow, Romans chapter 8, verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. What does the Spirit tell us? That we are children of God. If if children, then we are, what class? Heirs. And we are heirs of God. Do you see the next phrase? We are fellow heirs with Christ. The inheritance that God has given him, which is an inheritance that is included of all things now becomes the inheritance that you and I participate in. 
It is not a small thing for the Bible to say Christ is the inheritor of all things, and then he takes his inheritance, and he says, here, participate in my inheritance with me. We now get to taste what that inheritance is. In Hebrews chapter 9, in verse uh, 15, it says, He is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. The inheritance that you have in Christ covers all things for all times. You have an inheritance that's eternal. So your temporary bad experience cannot overwhelm what God has done for you in Jesus. He has made you the inheritor and the joint heir of all things. This is a big deal. I want you to go to Ephesians chapter 1, if you will, verse 18. This becomes very important for your faith, you guys, because you're going to have a bad experience. When that bad experience comes, how do you reconcile that? With your faith. I thought if I had faith, all things were going to be good. All things work together for the good. You keep telling me everything's going to be good. It's already good. So in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul prays for the Ephesians. I'm I'm going to tear into the middle of it. In verse 18, he's praying that their eyes of your heart would be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you, And what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? He is praying for steadfastness for the Ephesian believers. They need to know what their inheritance is. That will give you a foundation to deal with the bad experiences. So when the Bible comes and says he's an inheritor, that's not a small thing. One last thing, Matthew chapter 25, and then I got to move on. I I really, as I kind of ferreted out this inheritance thing in the scriptures, I'm like, oh, there's there's a sermon series here on inheritance, Uh, but I don't have time for that. Matthew 25, 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels are with him, Then he will sit on his glorious throne, and before him will be gathered all the nations. He will separate the people from one another as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. He will place the sheep on the right, the goats on the left. The king will say to those on the right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. We persevere because there is an eternal inheritance that is unfading, undefiled. It's kept in heaven for you, dear friends. Don't give up on your faith because you had a bad experience. I beg you. The evangelical American dream may not be the biblical dream. I'll go faster through the next six, I promise. Second, he is creator. We're back in Hebrews 1. He was the appointed of heir of all things, and through him also he created the world. The Son was the agent of creation. 
Interestingly, the word for world is not really the word you'd think for the earth, the cosmos, the dirt ball that we call home. Uh, it is the word uh, for times or eons or ages. Christ didn't just uh, create physical things. He created epochs. He created times and seasons. He is the controller of all things that have happened in the past and all things that will happen in the future, not just the things you can see. He created everything around him. He's much more than the holder of this dirt planet. He's the maker of all time. When it says that he's the creator uh, of the world, it is suggesting that Christ is the one who created all things. And so John in his gospel uh, starts it out in chapter 1, I'll get there, um, and says this, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. This, we keep coming back to this, you guys. This, I think, is one of the great failures of my generation, if there's any young people. We gave a lot of ground away on God being the creator. We, we allowed evolution to push our, uh, our understanding of what the scriptures teach about creation and about the creator to the margins and it has been to the detriment of people's faith. It's been to the detriment of, I had a bad experience, I don't think I believe anymore. Do you know how silly that sounds when you think there's a creator who made you, who sets the rules for how you behave? You're just going to turn your back on your creator because you had a bad experience? Is that what we're saying? And every time we whittle away at the magnificence and the power of the creation of God, I think we lose a little bit in our ability to handle the trials of this world. Just me thinking out loud with you. And I'm an old, crusty dude that, you know, gets stuck in old world. But when he says he made all the ages of the past, the present, and the future, that is no small thing. Third, he is divine. The next two phrases are unbelievable what they say about the Son. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of God's nature. This is the sun, you guys. Both of these words uh, have been brought out of hibernation. The, the, the word for radiance, the word for uh, exact representation, only times in the New Testament. So the writer of Hebrews dips in to his thesaurus and pulls out two very powerful words that he wanted to make sure set the sun apart. The first one has the idea that Christ radiates God himself. Um, one of the teachings that we would hold true in the book of Genesis is that when God created man and woman, he created them in his what class? In his image. We are image bearers. 
when we look at humanity, humanity is supposed to reflect divinity. Jesus was more than a reflection of divinity. He was the radiance of divinity. So the moon is us. We're the moon. The sun shines. The moon has no uh, light of its own. You all know this, right? Uh, but when the sun hits it, it reflects off it. We go, oh, there's the moon. It was there the whole time. We just didn't see it. That is the reflection. We are the moon. Guess what Christ is? He's the sun. He radiates God. We reflect God. That's amazing, isn't it? The second word is the word for um, imprint. Uh, It's actually the Greek word character. He is the exact character of God. And it talks about an impression, engraving, the stamping of a coin. Jesus possesses the exact essence of God. He is the perfect revelation of God. He is the perfect representation of God. And and if you wanted to say, I wonder what God would be like if he was a, a human being, you go, I know. And you go find Jesus and you go, here he is. Jesus is a radiance of his glory and he is a reflection of all that God is and he shows his character And together you put those two things and you have a powerful statement that says this. The Son is not like any other person who's ever existed. Which is why in John chapter 1 verse 14 the Bible says this. uh, The flesh, uh, the Word became flesh and dwelled among us and we beheld what? You guys remember the verse? His glory, radiant, the glory as the, what? Depends what version you're in, right? I got the old King James running around. The only begotten of the Father. It sounds so poetic. He's the one and only Son of God. And the Bible's very clear there. It uses two words, combined, monogenes, one of a kind. Jesus was a one of a kind of the Father. There's never been another one like him. There's never one before him. There's never one since him. He's the Son, and he's the one and only Son. And he radiates the Father, and he shows you exactly who he is. He is divine. Number four, he is the sustainer. So, he is the heir of all things, through whom the world is created, the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. We turn to Paul's writings in the book of Colossians, uh, chapter 1, and we get a little clarity. Listen to this, verse 16, for by him, that is Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Christ did not just make this and let it go. He sustains it. He put everything in place so that it holds together, and he watches over it. This, again, is the delight of a creator. He takes great joy in what he has made. Because of that, he doesn't just let it go willy-nilly. Not at all. He holds it together. Number E, 
Just waiting to see if you're awake. Number E, he is a purifier. The text goes on to say, and after making purification for sins, he sat down. Think about this. Everything that he's made has been contaminated. Everything that he has made has been corrupted. Sin has known no boundaries in its contamination ability. And Christ not only came as the creator of all things and the sustainer of all things, but also the purifier of all things, including you. You understand that when I say all things are contaminated, you're contaminated. You understand when I say all things are evil and dirty, that's you. Hebrews chapter 9. We'll get into this in more detail as we unpack the book, but I thought I'd at least read a few verses to you. Verse 11 of Hebrews 9, when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, then through a greater, more perfect tent, not made with hands, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the blood of goats and calves, and by the means of his own, but by means of his own blood, securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls, the sprinkling of defiled persons, the ashes of a heifer can sanctify the purification of how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to purify our conscience from dead works, to serve the living God. We have been cleansed and purified as his children now to be followers of him, not to say I had a bad experience, I give up, but to say, isn't it good to be washed? Same chapter, verse 27, and just as appointed for man to die once, after that comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. It is a good, glorious thing, you guys, to understand that he has purified us. One more, chapter 10, verse 11, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifice which never takes away sins. When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made footstool at his feet. For by a single offering, he is perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Oh, it's beautiful. It's amazing. He has purified us. Uh, number F, he is a ruler. He sat down at the right hand of the Father. I first wrote, he's a finisher. When he was done, he sat down. Verse 13, chapter 1, to which of the angels has he ever said, sit in my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool at your feet? None of them. We'll get to that next week. We'll talk about angels next week, by the way. Unpack what, is, what are angels like versus what is Christ like? Why is he so much? Oh, it's going to be, you'll have fun with it. Come back. Don't go camping. And as our high priest, uh, our Lord in chapter 8, verse 1 we have such a high priest seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty of heaven. He is the ruler of all things. And finally, he is greater. And I wished I had said he is superior, which is a word that shows up 13 times in the book of Hebrews. It is really the theme of our entire study. And it is this. Jesus is superior to everything that came before him. Period. And it will be repeated over and over and over. And if you do not understand that, you will give up when you have a bad experience. So the writer of Hebrews, who's worried about these folks, what? Being hard-hearted, drifting away, being dull of hearing. What is his opening speech to them? You need to know about Christ more. 
You need to understand the magnificence of Jesus. And when you do, you'll be able to handle the struggles of this earth. What's the, how the old hymn writer say it? Um, in the light of his grace. Oh, oh, I had it and now it's gone. What is it? Yeah, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this earth will grow strangely dim. Let's just sit here and let that roll over us a minute in the light of his glory and grace. I don't know what problems you're going through, you guys. I don't. Here's what I do know. Christ is better. I'm sorry you're going through. We can weep with you. We can help you. I would prefer not to be judgmental. Would you be okay with that? If you don't mind not being judgmental when you turn it back this way. So here is your son. He's an inheritor, creator, divine, sustainer, purifier, ruler, and superior. The conclusion is this. I had a bad experience, but it is not comparable to the Savior. And instead of deconstruction, let's build. Instead of giving up, let's get greater. Because he is. Chapter 10, verses 19 to 25. The writer comes and he says this. Since we have confidence, therefore brothers... He writes to the believers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way he opened for us through the curtain that is his flesh. Since we have a great high priest over the household of God, there are three things we should do since that's true. Let us draw near with a true heart. Let us hold fast our confession of hope. Let us consider how to stir one another on. Let's not give up on each other. And if you even notice in the text, it means go to church. I hate church. I had a bad experience. I get it. I understand it. Hopefully I haven't been the cause of it. I can't guarantee that. But I can say this. Your Bible says draw near, hold fast, and consider how to help your brothers do the same thing. Why? Because Christ is too good to quit on. Because Christ is too amazing to walk away from. He is the constructor of your faith. Don't allow your experiences to be the deconstruction of your faith. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your son. How could we say anything less? I hope he's been proclaimed well today. I hope the dear friends in this room have embraced him today. I pray, Lord, that it would sustain them and strengthen them in the midst of the struggles and the trials. And even though there's a lot of bad experiences, you're a good, good God. And thank you for revealing yourself and speaking to us through your son. Help us to be good followers, please. Amen. God bless you.